And welcome, everyone, to this week's edition of Novak Now. I'm Jake Novak, your host here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Again, you can follow me any time of day, anytime you want, on my Twitter feed, at JakeJakeNY is my Twitter handle, at JakeJakeNY. I also have a couple of Facebook pages. Just look under my name, Jake Novak, N-O-V-A-K, and you can find them. Um, and that's a good way to, to follow everything I'm, I'm talking about and writing about during the course of the week. Uh, but this week on Novak Now, I want to talk about basically four topics. I know I usually dedicate the entire half hour to one full topic, but I find that there are four topics that are somewhat related that are very much in the news and I think need a little extra commentary. I don't know if I'm the best person in the world to, to comment on them, but I have some strong feelings and thoughts about each one of them that I wanted to share with you. The first one is a, 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 the latest um, developments in a topic that I've spoken to you about on other editions of Novak Now in the past. And again, you'd see them on my Twitter feed as well as they happen. And that is this entire ongoing Facebook scandal that we've seen really unfolding over and over again over the last 12 to 18 months. For the left, the biggest part of the scandal is that the is that Facebook did not do enough to police the use of Facebook by Russian agents and the Russian government who had people that they were employing to interfere in our elections, uh, to put together Facebook pages and Facebook messages uh, and advertisements that were basically foreign, basically, actually, literally foreign-sponsored campaign ads, which are not legal in this country, that for the most part supported Donald Trump, or at least were negative uh, against Hillary Clinton. And the left's very angry at Facebook for not policing that better and not doing a bad, bad job. And for the most part, Facebook's apologies have been basically only to the left. They, they know that, they, that Silicon Valley is mostly a left-wing place, that most of their workers are left-wing. So Mark Zuckerberg and to some degree uh, Sheryl Sandberg, who's sort of the number two person at Facebook, have apologized for that. They want to do a better job of policing Russian interference because they know that that frightens, angers, and continues the delusion on the leftward side of the aisle here in America that that's the reason why you know Donald Trump won, that it wasn't a fair and square election, that there was some kind of super ultimate, you know, fantastic persuasion going on on social media sponsored by the Russians, and that's why Donald Trump won. And again, on previous editions of Novak Now, I've discussed this, and I've looked at some of these ads, and I urge you all to take a good look at them. Uh, it's very easy to look up on the internet if you look up the Russian ads that appeared on Facebook during the 2016 election. And any objectively-minded American looking at them has to really almost laugh after seeing the full package of what the Russians had to offer. Um, they really look they were, like they were put together by someone who still thinks the United States is somewhere near the late 50s or early 60s. In other words, someone who thinks that the, half the country is still segregated by law. And another part, another major stream that follows through a lot of these ads is some kind of crusader-esque Christian imagery, which is just doesn't work in the United States, even for hardcore evangelicals. I'm talking about European-style Christianity-laced ads with images that just don't mesh with American sensibilities. This is my long way of saying they were awful. <laughs> the Russian ads, if they convinced anyone... 
I'd be shocked. And there have been some academic studies that have shown that there is no evidence that any of the Russian ads on social media or Facebook actually changed anyone's minds at all in the 2016 election. It is yet another example of how the Democrats, just so many of them, will not admit that Donald Trump won the election fair and square, which, by the way, does not help them. The best way to keep losing is to deny you've lost in the past. And this is, you know, it's, it's a great example. The best example of this, of course, is in sports, in the sports world. I mean, imagine you're a coach of a team that's lost 10 straight games in a row, and you insist in your mind that all those games that you lost were really not your fault, bad referees, bad luck, whatever, and you're just going to keep on doing what you're always doing. Well, that's a, a great way to guarantee your 11th, 12th, and 13th straight loss, which is what the Democrats on the left keep doing as they focus and fixate on this exaggerated influence the Russians may have had. But nevertheless, this is a big issue for, for the left, and Facebook has apologized for that a lot. Of course, there has been no real direct apology that I know of from Facebook over their censorship of more conservative voices on Facebook, their hair trigger for banning pro-Israel voices on Facebook while they allow pro Islamist and sometimes even actual terrorist pages to, to remain on the on their platform. And so this has been a running problem for Facebook for a long time. And then the other issue with Facebook, the other scandal of Facebook that's been running for about a year now, is this breach of privacy for the users. Which for those of us who've been following Facebook for, for a long time now, find almost laughable. In that from day one, a lot of us looked at Facebook and looked at their business model and immediately realized that the business model is the fact that they have so much information on their individual users and they sell that information to marketers and to retailers and to pollsters and, you and whoever's buying. And whoever's buying. And as many wise people have said in the past, if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product. And for those of us who use Facebook... We are the product. We are the product. And again, I, I've talked about this on Novak now here on the Nachum Siegel in the past. I've talked about it, about how, A, it's just so ludicrous that Facebook continues to contend that this is not their real business model. They pretend that the breaching of individual privacy, that the selling of individual information, of the, of the user's data information, is some kind of unhappy symptom of their business model when it actually is their business model. And it's laughable that Facebook continues to play this game to this day of denying that. And it's laughable not only because it's just so obviously untrue, but the other reason, and I know I'm, I'm sort of in the, in the minority here, as I've said again on previous editions of Novak now, I'm in the minority in that I don't think it's such a big deal. I think it's a big deal that they're lying, but I don't think that it's a big deal that that's what they're doing. If people are volunteering very public information about themselves by surfing certain websites, by talking about certain political events in the news, and by doing so for their hundreds of followers or however, however many followers they have, that's, that's publicly – that's doing things in the public. And I don't think it's such a big deal that Facebook is gathering that information and keeping tabs on it. I really don't think so. And again, for those of you who want to get – a little bit more of a detailed explanation for me about what I mean by that. Again, I, I urge you to check out the archives on the Nachum Siegel Network page, and you'll see how I reason 
the reason down the, the hysteria some people have about so-called privacy breaches. When you're being so public and writing your life online and, and, and letting people follow what you're doing online, the fact that there's a company that's aggregating all that data and sending it out to other people really isn't such a big deal. The other reason why it's not such a big deal is because we humans are very, very simple people. A very small amount of data is all the marketers need, is all the pollsters need to, to know within tremendously high percentage accuracy, 95% or so accuracy, how we're going to make our choices both as consumers and as voters and beyond that. And beyond that. So I don't really have so much of a problem with that. The problem is that Facebook lies about it. And they work very, very hard to maintain those lies to a point where the work that they do to maintain the lie becomes worse than the lie itself. You know, the old, the old saying, the lie is one thing or the crime is one thing. It's the cover-up that really gets you into trouble. And that's what Facebook is facing right now. Because what we learned this week is that Facebook, instead of trying to come clean with the American public a couple of years ago when these problems started, when these accusations started about privacy breaches, etc., and instead of trying to fix that, they went on a real PR campaign using all kinds of above-board and below-the-belt tactics to cover it up, to cover it up, or to push back on the criticism. And this week, the New York Times published a piece that was filled with a lot of interesting revelations. Uh, my problem with the piece was that it really, again, like most leftists, was really just mostly focused on being upset about the not doing a great job on the policing of the Russian manipulations, the Russian uh, pages on Facebook, all that kind of stuff, and made a mountain out of that molehill. But didn't make enough of a big deal out of Facebook's cover-up activities. And someone who comes off really, really poorly besides founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg is Sheryl Sandberg. Officially, her title is Chief Operating Officer of Facebook. And she comes off as the person who hires certain groups to push back on Facebook's critics, but then takes no responsibility for the nefarious or underhanded tactics that those groups use. So, of course, the one tactic that really caught my attention, I think would catch most of, the, most of the attention of folks who listen to Novak now, and certainly Nachum Siegel Network listeners, is the fact that one of the organizations that Facebook hired to push back on its critics played a both sides of the fence, very disgusting, embarrassing, and truly unethical game of playing both sides of the fence on anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism. So the New York Times and the leftists are very upset because it turns out that Facebook hired a right-wing organization which seemed to try to link all of Facebook's critics to George Soros, who for a lot of anti-Semites is a very big bugaboo, big boogeyman, I should say, because he was born Jewish, doesn't live as a Jew at all, and as I said on the last edition of Novak Now, is truly an enemy of the Jewish people. You know, it's I would call it ironic, but it's not the right word. It's just our luck as Jews that a, a, a human being, a billionaire that sprang from a Jewish womb, who is a tremendous enemy of the Jewish people and a tremendous enemy of the state of Israel, is also considered by anti-Semites as their enemy as well, even though he's actually doing their work for them quite well. Quite well. If anti-Semites don't like Jews and anti-Semites don't like Israel, George Soros is their man. He's their man. Big time. 
But of course, they don't like him anyway because anti-Semites aren't exactly logical. And if you're born from a Jewish mother, they're not going to like you at, under any circumstances. Which is why a lot of anti-Semitic white power groups have a big problem with Jesus. You know, not only born Jewish, but had a Jewish mother. I mean, the whole thing. You can read about, for example, how the Nazis, when they took over Germany, tried a, you know, a complete whitewashing of the German church so that they could get ref- references of Mary, because she was Jewish, out of the, out of the liturgy and little less discussion of, of Jesus as an actual human being. That's an entirely different story, but part of the same Part of the same cloth of what I'm talking about with the strange relationship they have with George Soros. So for Jews who like to read the New York Times, especially secular Jews who don't really have any real connection to the actual Jewish tradition and Jewish life, but the only time they sort of identify as Jews is when they see anti-Semitism out there. Seeing a story about how George Soros is being targeted by, by a group hired by Facebook to push back on their critics, that sets off all the alarm bells for them. These are people who aren't interested in being Jews in the, at all. In any traditional sense of the word, maybe they like eating bagels, maybe they like Jerry Seinfeld, I don't know. But going to shul, or learning Torah, or learning Jewish history, I mean, forget that. That's out. But attack them for being Jews, or attack George Soros, who again, just happened to be born from a Jewish woman, then they're all up in arms. So of course that's what they were focused on. But what I'm focused on, and what I think a lot of, all of us should really be spending more time focusing on, is the fact that the same group that Facebook hired also sought to use anti-Semitism as a shield against criticism of Facebook. Because so many Facebook executives, namely the top two, being Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, are Jewish. So at the same time that this group was using, was trying to cultivate some of the anti-Semitic hatred for George Soros to push back on Facebook critics, they were also trying to use the anti-Semitic excuse for painting all the critics of, of Facebook in some kind of anti-Semitic brush. I mean, if your head is spinning from what I'm just describing, I don't blame you. It's hard to get your head around all of this. But this article in the New York Times and other publications have, 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 have made this argument and shown some decent evidence that Facebook is also trying to insinuate that any criticism of Facebook, organized criticism of Facebook, was somehow an anti-Semitic plot against people like Zuckerberg and Sandberg. At the same time, they're hiring an organization that's trying to cultivate and use some of the anti-Semitic groups that hate George Soros to work in their favor as well. I mean, the head spins. It's hard to get your head around. I get it. But just to try to summarize it in one sentence, let me just say, you're talking about an organization that's trying to use anti-Semitism to fight its critics and also use anti-Semitism to shield itself from its critics. Unbelievable, but true, and just, just embarrassing. And the fact that Sheryl Sandberg is at the center of this, I have to say, just makes my blood boil for a lot of reasons. Now, again, to be fair, Sheryl Sandberg is denying that she knew anything that was going on. She didn't know that this group that, that Facebook had hired was going to do this. I suppose there's some plausible deniability in there, but there's still responsibility, in my opinion. You hire someone to do a job for you, and they use unethical tactics to do it, you're still responsible. You're still responsible. You have to keep tabs on what the people you hire are doing. Okay? I mean, if you're owner of a restaurant and someone in your restaurant in the, in the kitchen is spitting in the food, that's still ultimately your responsibility, right? Right. Okay, I think we can agree on that. Now, the reason why it makes my blood boil, for other than the obvious reason that this is a fellow Jew and this is a tremendous chilol Hashem, for those of you who don't know that term, that means sort of an embarrassment of God, a, a, a degradation of God's name, 
when Jews do embarrassing things very, as, who are very publicly Jews, we take it very seriously as Jews. We're all embarrassed. We don't jump up to say, oh, that person's not Jewish. That person's not a real Jew, a true Jew. Like sometimes we hear Islamists say when, when there's an Islamic terrorist and, and Muslim leaders say, oh, that's not a real Muslim. You know, you, no, that doesn't work. You can't get away with that. And I'm proud to say, I guess, for the most part, that Jews don't do that when fellow Jews commit crimes and do, and do bad stuff. So that's, of course, the first reason why my blood boils. But my second reason, and this is one that I want to discuss just for a moment, is because Sheryl Sandberg, between the authorship of her book Lean In and just a few months after the book came out, the death of her husband, became a tremendous darling of, I would say, the mainstream Jewish intelligentsia, for lack of a better term. When Sheryl Sandberg's husband died tragically, he was working, they, the family was on a vacation in Mexico and her husband was working out in a treadmill and he died of a heart attack and she wrote about the rushing of him to the, to the hospital in an ambulance and how this was a tremendous blow to her and the spiritual renewal that she went through afterwards. I think every reform and conservative rabbi, maybe a few orthodox rabbis in this country, read snippets of her essays about that period in her life from the pulpit in sermons. I know mine did. And I really can't blame him to some degree because it's low-hanging fruit, right? I mean, a Jew writing about how the death of a husband who was also Jewish has passed away, has challenged and increased her spirituality. I mean, how is it, especially as a conservative or reform rabbi where you're dealing with drive-by, drive-by Jews every day, how can you pass that one up? I mean, it's very similar to the fact that every conservative and reform rabbi and probably a lot of Orthodox rabbis decided to jump on the Charlottesville debacle a year and a half ago. You know, and decided to take all of President Trump's words out of context because how can you avoid it? You're dealing with low, with drive-by Jews who have no connection. Almost most of the people in your synagogue week to week are not regulars. I mean, you've got to try to connect with them on something. And when you have an anti-Semitic incident like Charlottesville or you have a Jewish spirituality testimonial like Sheryl Sandberg, how can you pass that up? It's too hard. It's too hard to pass up. It takes the most, it takes the most disciplined and serious-minded rabbi in the country, if you're a conservative or reform rabbi, to pass that up. So most of them couldn't do it. Most of them couldn't do it, and I really don't blame them. But the hero worship of Sandberg that went on and on after especially her essays about her husband's death, I have to say it rubbed me the wrong way. Now, I would never have said anything publicly about it at the time. We don't criticize people who have gone through a personal tragedy. I have no doubt in my mind that Sheryl Sandberg was being genuine in her feelings and what she was writing about, don't get me wrong about that. But while I am a capitalist, and I do believe in free trade and an economy and all that kind of stuff, and I'm, I'm very, very much in favor of people who make great fortunes on legal commerce, I'm all in favor of that. But when we start to canonize those people, when we start to idolize those people simply for a word that they've written or some kind of an essay that they write, or a perceived image that they work very hard to establish. I'm a little wary of that. I don't like worshiping human beings. As a Jew, I have a real problem with it, because the worshiping of a human being, even though he happened to have been a Jew, is one of the reasons why Jews have suffered quite a bit over the last 2,000 years. You know what I'm talking about. But it doesn't rub me the right way, even if it isn't a Jewish person. I mean, when I first encountered people in the 1990s, for example, who were coming darn clear to worshiping Oprah Winfrey. I mean, I met women who I worked with in the news business who were worshiping her like a god. It frightened me. It frightened me. I was wondering, what, what in the world's going on here? 
And the canonization of Sheryl Sandberg rubbed me the wrong way at that time, especially by Jewish professionals, rabbis, you know, that kind of group. And to see now that she is at least in some ways indirectly responsible for horrific use of anti-Semitism, both pro and con, is just unbelievably saddening to me. Saddening to me on a lot of levels. And she should be ashamed. And those rabbis and other Jewish leaders who, who lauded her should really take her to task and say, hey, we were fooled. We were fooled. It was low-hanging fruit to, to look at a woman who had been through what she had been through. And the fact that she was bringing up any aspect of her Judaism was just too, too much of an attractive thing for us to pass up as rabbis and Jewish leaders. We had to talk about it. We had to make her into a hero. And now we regret it. I, I would appreciate if a lot of people did that. I really would. I really would. You know, the next thing I want to talk about is just the offshoot of this, which is just a little bit of a mention about Russia and something that I want anyone here who's looking for a new book or a new part of history to look into. I know uh, last week or the week before when I talked about Judaism and nationalism and I talked about the history of Napoleon Bonaparte and his relationship with the Jews. I know I got a lot of emails and people calling me, asking me, what, you know, give me a name of a good book about Napoleon. And I had a couple of names, but honestly, the, the real, for example, like a, a Ron Chernow who wrote about Alexander Hamilton, you know, that became such a sensation. The, the, that kind of a book or by a, by a Ron Chernow or Walter Isaacson about the life of Napoleon, I think would have a great market right now. That, that book isn't out there yet. So you'll have to look at some historical kind of uh, books and, and other data to, to get a full understanding of what I, I've learned about Napoleon and the Jews. But I, I, look, I, I encourage you to, to do your own searches and let us know if there's a great book to recommend. But I do have something else to talk about when it talks, when you talk about Russia and you talk about Facebook and you talk about political manipulation and you talk about fake news, you know, there's a great story in just the last 30 years or so, a little bit more than that, let's say 35 years uh, in, in world Jewish history of truly one of the great, and, and by great, I don't mean good, but just large scale, one of the great Russian fake news deceptions uh, in, in that time. And that, of course, is the case of, of Ivan the Terrible or John Demyanyuk. Uh, many of you listening will know what I'm talking about. In the mid-1980s, the Israelis successfully got the United States to extradite a Cleveland man named John Demyanyuk, who had been born in, and, and lived in Eastern Europe, who the Israelis suspected of being a, a notorious concentration camp guard, death camp guard, known as Ivan the Terrible. And they brought him to trial in Israel in 1986 and 1987. To call it a show trial is not really a stretch because they literally moved the proceedings from the trial from the courthouse to a large theater in Israel, which set off a lot of red flags for me, even as a teenager. And for those of you who who don't know what happened in this case, Demyanuk was convicted in his trial. It was a very public event in Israel over the course of many months. And the evidence against him, though, was really shaky. And while he remained in Israeli custody for several years, the Israelis really almost immediately knew they had the wrong guy. But instead of admitting to the world that they had the wrong guy, they found a way to release him on a technicality, and he still is living uh, in, in, now he's back in the United States. If you want to read, now where does Russia come in in this? Well, I don't want to give away everything about it. But suffice it to say that Russia set this man up. 
Now, is John Yemyanuk somebody that we should really be crying tears over? No. Was he an anti-Semite? Almost definitely. Was he someone who fought willingly with the German army during the war? Again, almost definitely. Was he the death camp guard, Ivan the Terrible? Almost definitely not. Almost definitely not. And there's a fantastic book about his trial and about the whole case and how the Russians set this man up and why they did it and why they used fake news and deception uh, to do so is a fantastic book called Defending Ivan the Terrible by his Israeli lawyer, a man named Yoram Sheftel. Unfortunately for Demyanuk, Yoram Sheftel was not his original lawyer. Had he had him, Sheftel, as his lawyer from day one, he never would have been convicted and probably never even brought to trial. But Sheftel fought for him towards the end of his trial, started the the domino effect of doubt about his guilt, and eventually got him released. And Yoram Sheftel is no lefty, Jew, self-hating Jewish type. He is a very right-wing nationalist Jew, um, very proud Zionist, but he knew that Israel, Israel, Israelis had the wrong guy, and he eventually found out why. And again, the Russians had a lot to do with it, and that was a big part of their fake news operation. The Russians have been great purveyors of fake news since the time of the Tsars. Um, the publishing and the disseminating of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the forgery document that convinced so many people who, are, who probably wanted to be convinced that the Jews were some part of an international conspiracy, was something that the Tsarist government promoted around the world. The lie that the Jews conspired to kill Jesus and are really the ones responsible for that is another thing that the Russians didn't create, but certainly promoted and, and, and kept the, those fires burning throughout the world for a very long time. They're very big on this. They're just, they're big on the fake news. They've been on fake news for hundreds of years in Russia. That's what they do. They're quite good at it. But they're also not always the greatest at it when it comes to new technologies. And again, I urge you to look up on the internet all the Russian ads that floated on social media during the 2016 election. If you think they convinced anyone, listen, God bless you. You're a more trusting and believing person than I am. Those ads are just awful. And I don't think they convinced anyone who already wasn't convinced. The last thing I want to talk about really quickly is this incident that happened at the Fiddler on the Roof uh, performance last week where somebody yelled out, Heil Hitler, Heil Trump, during the intermission. And everyone assumed it was an anti-Semitic outburst. It turned out it was a drunk Jewish member of the audience who thought that something that he saw in the Fiddler in the Roof presentation reminded him of Trump, who he, whom he loathed and loathes to this day. And he thought that by yelling that out, all the anti-Trump people in the audience would think he was a great guy. It turned out they were horrified, as they should have been. We don't yell out those kinds of things in public at any time. And it just goes to show that yet again, and this is something that I've written about a lot on Novak, here you know, on my Twitter feed, and I talk about a lot here on Novak now on the Nachum Siegel Network, Donald Trump, for all of his misdeeds and all of the missteps and all the things that he's done wrong, and, or, and most really, more importantly, said wrong, he's said more, a lot more wrong than he's done wrong. I think he's, his policies have actually been fine. I'm sorry to say for those of you who are just maniacally opposed to him. His policies have been you know, okay to fine. It's been what he says that, that I, I understand the, the issues that people have with him. But the problem is not so much Donald Trump, it's the way that people respond to him, the over-the-top hysterics. Make it worse. You're making it worse. You're not 
helping. I know of people who woke up their children in the middle of the night on election night in 2016, woke them up at 2 a.m. or whenever the election was kind of called to, to tell them they should cry and be afraid now because Donald Trump's going to be president. First off, if you ever do that to your children and there isn't like a fire in the house or someone breaking into your home, you're a bad parent. Okay, You just are. Good parents don't frighten their children and don't inject that kind of fear and loathing into their hearts for no, when, when, when there isn't an imminent danger, okay? Second of all, it's just not true. It's just not true. So the overreactions that people continue to, continue to show when it comes to everything Trump does, you are making it worse. You are not helping. And I'm saying this to both pro and anti-Trump listeners at the same time. Stop it. Stop overreacting. React to everything as, as it should be reacted to. The world is not ending. But this edition of Novak Now is ending. I'm Jake Novak. I hope to speak to you again next week. Thank you.